Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, I'm excited to talk to Dan Price today, as I've dubbed him the world's nicest CEO, which is <laughs> something that, uh, you know, I don't even I don't even know if there are any other nice CEOs, never mind like him being the nicest in the world. Well, it's also like the difference. Which I'm sure there's plenty of CEOs who on a personal level, like if you meet them, are yeah. nice people. But in terms of being both like nice on an interpersonal level, but also a good person. Right. They're, that's unusual. The other ones are nice, but then they're like, let me show you my child slave labor factory. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. This guy's this guy is the real deal. Really interesting dude. Excited to talk to him. Um before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about, I don't know if, how much of this uh, Biden town hall you watched the other night, but there are some clips from there that are, to say the least. Yeah. So uh, let's kick it off with, here's Joe Biden talking about the filibuster, and then we'll come back and break it down. I would go back to that where you have to maintain the floor. You have to stand there and talk and hold the floor. You can't I, just say I understand now. that. So why is protecting the filibuster, is that more important no, than protecting no, voting rights, no. especially for people who fought and died for that? No. It's not. I want to see the United States Congress, the United States Senate, pass S-1 and S-4, the John Lewis Act, get them to my desk so I can sign them. But here's the deal. What I also want to do, I want to make sure we bring along not just all the Democrats. We bring along Republicans who I know know better. They know better than this. So a couple things. Um, Joe, I want to be better at golf than Tiger Woods. I want to be the best golfer in the world. That shit is not going to fucking happen. And that's the same. The chances of me being the best golfer in the world and the chances of nine Republicans supporting voting rights. Forget it. it yeah, that's what I'm saying. So like, I... I genuinely don't know. Is he just that naive where he thinks like, wow, one more whiskey with old good old Mitch McConnell and I'll change his mind? Or is he like, this is just a cover story when behind the scenes he's like, I know we're not fucking getting anywhere with this. I'm just stalling. Which do you think it is? That's a good question. I'm inclined to believe that he actually is stuck in like a 1980s mindset. Because usually people don't change their governing like philosophy and heuristic from the the formation of whatever their like political identity or personal identity is. So I think he came up in this era before the total partisan like alignment and sorting happened where you did have more bipartisan, some of them were terrible, but more sort of like bipartisan and we'll be able to get dinner together and we'll do this bill together and give things away. So I think he really does on some level think that he's going to have one more whiskey with Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell and pull him over. I think so, because but, he's so consistent. This is like the one thing that he just cannot let go of. It's so central to his own view of himself. Okay, but the thing I keep coming back to is like, if it was like, if he had to get four votes, mm -hmm. maybe, he's got to get like nine. Nine? You're going to get nine. You couldn't even get... Josh Hawley, who's like the fake populist guy on the right, you couldn't even get him to support a $15 minimum wage. Yeah. And he does the whole bullshit like, I'm a populist and I care about workers, but definitely fuck the workers when it comes to voting. So how the, like, how are you going to get nine Republicans? When, by the way, what, like, what do the Republicans say when it comes to voting rights? Basically, their position is like, 
everybody should have voter ID and we should like purge the voter rolls, which is like an anti-voting rights position. Right. You know what I mean? No. So it's just, it strikes me as just so delusional if he actually believes it. It is extraordinarily delusional. And I also think that he really believes it. Uh, fair enough. I mean, you enough. have to think like it wasn't that long ago in his, in the span of his lifetime during the Bush administration right. when Republicans voted along with Democrats to re-up the Voting Rights Act. I mean, this stuff happened in, you know, in terms of Joe Biden's life in the recent past. Um, and I think he would look at like, they said I couldn't do it. They said I couldn't work with any Republicans. And here they are negotiating with me on the infrastructure package. So all these people are wrong. I mean, you remember, this was something he was very, very insistent about during the campaign. And even after he got elected, didn't he have that quote where he was like, they say I won't be able to wa work with Republicans. Well, just watch me. Just watch me. Well, he me. says when Trump leaves, the fever will break. That's well, the fever will, will break was the Obama line about after after I get reelected, then the fever will Will break, and, and then that obviously Biden said that happen. about Trump too. Biden when Trump's the same gone. thing. I mean, I I actually think that he is genuinely that delusional and out of touch with the modern GOP. It's 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 possible. Um, so to your point, where he says like, "Oh, Republicans are going to negotiate with me," yeah, dude, to make things worse every time, objectively worse. Right. So with everything, like when it came to what was their contribution to the infrastructure negotiation? Let's make it privatized. Let's and, private. Right. And, and then, let's sell off the shit we already have. And and <laughs> let's raise taxes on well, working class. Yeah. People. Let's do a gas. Yeah. Tax. Let's do a gas tax, which is a regressive <laughs> tax, which weighs which weigh, raises taxes on people who can't afford to pay those taxes. Right. So like everything they contribute is shitty. Why is that never accounted for? Well, the answer is he only, he half agrees with them. That's the answer is that he's not as he does, he's not as annoyed by their proposals as I am or you are. We look at it and we're like, get this fucking shit out of here. He's well, like, hmm, seems somewhat reasonable. He's got a classic beltway fetish with bipartisanship. He totally does. That's like yeah. ideologically neutral. It doesn't matter that it makes it worse. Yeah. It's more important that you have three Republicans on board yeah. who made it mm -hmm. manifestly shittier than to do the thing that's actually right and that people would like more and not have their support. Right. And you know what? We're, all, we're actually burying the lead here, too, because the other point he made in there was the about filibuster. the talking filibuster. Mm -hmm. He's like, you know, I want to make it so they got to get up there again and they got to talk again. And if he actually believed that and was fighting for it, I'd say awesome. But none of his actions are backing up what he said there. Right. Because... If he really believed that, number one, he should be on top of this like nobody's business where every day, every press conference, every interview, he talks about it and he's aggressive about it. And he says, this is what we have to do and we need to do it now. Um, or, you know, you fucking call Schumer. Say, because all you need is 51 votes for that. Yeah. So to, to say you're in favor of that and then not lift a finger to get it leads me to believe you're not really in favor of that. Because, listen, they do have the con most convenient excuse in the world is... Blame the Republicans. Blame the Republicans. Blame the Republicans. Try to get everything through regular order and then blame the Republicans. But if you have the ability to get rid of the filibuster or change it to the talking filibuster, or people don't talk about this, you can change the rules with 51 votes to give yourself more cracks at reconciliation. Or you could change the rules to have the filibuster not apply to whatever issues you don't want it to apply to. You know, the rules, the filibuster, I, I remember this fact because I covered it this past week. There are 160 exceptions to the filibuster. 160. Hmm. And it changes all the time. They change it all the time. So now when the Democrats are like, what can I do? There's nothing I can do, bro. That's total bullshit. So I think he's just saying that to cover his ass with the base. 
to say, no, seriously, I am in favor of something you'd like. I am in favor of reforming the filibuster. But if you're not going to do anything or say anything to get there, then you're not really in favor of it. He especially feels pressure to at least say something about changing the filibuster because it really has been tied to being a racial justice issue. Mm, that's a good and, point. Um, and yeah. Don Lemon made that point. But remember, Barack Obama spoke about the filibuster in terms of racial justice and how the filibuster was used to block progress on, you know, landmark civil rights legislation and that that's the real legacy of the filibuster, which is true, by the way. Um, so I think that has put more pressure on him to at least pretend to be in support of some kind of a change. But the reality is, just like Obama before him, Democrats love to pretend they're completely helpless. And so they architect all of these fake constraints for themselves that keep them from being able to actually do the things that they claim to want to do. So with Biden, now they've got control of all branches of government. So you can't just be like, oh, it's the Republicans, which is what Obama mostly did during mm -hmm. his term. That worked very effectively um, for his, eight, his second term in office there. Um, so you can't have that. So instead, you've got to have the filibuster is one constraint. The Senate parliamentarian with reconciliation, of course, is another constraint. And then even with things that he could personally do without Congress, executive orders, remember that leaked um, call that he had with civil rights leaders. It was either, I think it was just before his term started, before he was inaugurated. And they were like, hey, here's some executive orders we want you to get on top of. And he very clearly and very sort of like crabbly um, insisted to them, like, I'm not going far on executive orders. I don't want to challenge the law or like push the limits of the law on that whatsoever. So he's hemmed himself in with filibuster, Senate parliamentarian, Republicans are bad, and executive orders are going to be crafted in this very, very narrow way to avoid having any having to go through the legal system and having any sort of scrutiny. All of those are completely fake like yeah. constraints mm -hmm. that he architected because they like to have an excuse for not ha not getting anything done. They like to be able to point the finger in another direction and not have any culpability themselves. Because ultimately, Crystal, they kind of want to be constrained because, like I said, they half agree with the Republicans. Joe Biden on the campaign trail, even when he was out there saying, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm for the public option. Even that was not even true. Yeah. You know, like he so Joe Biden campaigning was relatively moderate, but even Joe Biden on the campaign trail is to the left of where he is as when he governs. Yes. So like the issue is he sort of half agrees with the Republicans. So all those excuses are very useful to hold on to the image of being further left than he is. Yeah. You know what I mean? While yeah, governing exactly how and where he wants to govern. And to your Senate parliamentarian point, this one I think annoys me the most because of the media, because mm -hmm. The way that the media discusses it is just a crime. It's basically they're doing manufacturing consent right in front of our faces because they'll say things like the Senate parliamentarian has ruled. Right. Yeah. So, and what they're not, <laughs> not telling like they're you a judge. is this is a, an advisory staffer and their only job is to tell you what precedent is. And you could listen to the precedent and say, great, I'm going to go ahead and not abide by that precedent. Or you could fire them. In 2001, the Repu Trent Lott fired the Senate parliamentarian because the Senate parliamentarian told them they couldn't do certain things with the Bush tax cuts. And they were like, that's nice. You're fired. I'm going to bring in somebody who says I can do it. Yep. So, it, you know, because they actually wanted to get those things done. Right. The fact that the Democrats aren't saying 
parliamentarian. Fuck off. Who are you? You're an unelected bureaucrat, and I'm not going to do the thing I promised my constituents because you fuck off. But they don't say it because, again, they don't really believe in these things they say they believe in. Well, and that particular excuse has been weaponized and wielded a few times very blatantly. Um, First of all, with the $15 minimum wage where it was like, of course, Bernie and the left and working class people across the country, of course, we really support the $15 minimum wage and we're putting it in the reconciliation package. But, oh, darn it. Senate parliamentarian says we couldn't get it. Well, next time around, we promise we're going to really get it done. And now with the reconciliation bill, you see a few items that I think they find politically uh scary to them, which is also part of this like 90s legacy mentality that will tell you that the less you do, the better you are off politically. Like the way to really excite and appeal to voters is to do as little as possible. That's still the mentality that they live in. So what are they putting in the reconciliation bill? They're putting immigration reform Mm -hmm. in. Very unlikely that much of that passes muster with the Senate parliamentarian. Climate change stuff. Climate change, in particular, um, the renewable energy standard, Mm -hmm. which is the part that has the most is would be the the sort of broadest and most sweeping most effective in terms of what they've proposed that's up to the senate parliamentarian will they rule in favor of allowing that through i think that's very dicey and that's one that i think they feel like oh is they're politically nervous about in the industrial midwest whatever whatever and then the pro act um pro union legislation that i know we both care a lot about there may be a few pieces of that that pass muster with the parliamentarian i think most parts of it will not so you get to signal to these different interest groups that you made a lot of promises to like we tried Sorry, guys. But ultimately, you don't do anything to actually get the thing passed. It's the exact same thing uh, Obama did with the Employee Free Choice Act Mm -hmm. with regards to unions in his first administration. It was like, well, we tried, guys. Sorry. You know, I know I promised you we'd get this done on the trail, but whatever. We're moving on. Yeah. Again, the thing that drives me crazy is the media's job is to educate people. And they're, if anything, it's anti-education on this stuff where they go with whatever that Democratic line is, even though the Democrats are using this stuff as excuses. And it's very obvious to those of us who follow it closely. Yes. So um, there's another part of this town hall that I want to show you. Mm-hmm. And I'm, yeah, I'm going to warn everybody in advance. This is this is a little yikes. Take a look. That's underway, just like the other question that's illogical. And I've heard you speak about it because you always, I'm not being solicitous, but you, you're always straight up about what you're doing. And the question is whether or not we should be in a position where you uh, um, are, why can't the, the, the experts say, we know that this virus is in fact, uh, um, uh, it, it, it's going to be, uh, or excuse me, we, we, we know why all the drugs approved are not temporarily approved, but permanently approved. Yeah. That's underway, too. I expect that to occur quickly. Well, that means you mean for the FDA? For the FDA. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So I'll get to Biden in a second, but somebody made a good point. The most concerning part of that is Don Lemon pretending it made sense. Mm. And Don Lemon, like, rolling with it. That's- that says a lot about the media. It says a lot about CNN. But listen, when it comes to Biden... I mean, what do you even say? There's no, I don't even see a counter argument at this point where somebody could be like, not bro, he's got a stutter and the thing happened and I, I don't even know what you're talking about. He's yeah. totally fine. This is just like he's always been. It's just been, always been like this. Yeah, the, the Don Lemon thing is a good point because 
not only does he pretend like it makes sense, he kind of like feeds him the line. Right, yeah. Kind of like covers for him. You mean this thing that you didn't say at all and you babbled through for 47 <laughs> right. minutes? You mean that thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, the thing. That thing. Right. That's the one. That's what I meant. Yeah, it's very, I mean, it's painful to watch, number one. Number two, it's just very weird how... Um, this it was okay to talk about during the Democratic primary, Julian Castro and yeah. a lot you of You remember what you just said five seconds ago? You don't remember what you lot, just said? Right. A lot yeah. of mainstream commentators feel, felt perfectly comfortable weighing in on like, you know, he's kind of lost a step yeah. from when he was just torching Paul Ryan yep, in, in that vice presidential sure. debate and how good. I mean, this guy used to be really good on, on the trail. And yeah, he's always... You know, he's always had his gaffes and, like, unintentionally said things that he probably shouldn't have said. But you never saw anything like that. And it has nothing to do with him having overcome a stutter as a very young man. Um, so it's just interesting to see moments like this and know that no one in the media is going to be willing to say an absolute word about this. And look... I think for most people, even if they had, if even if we had had an honest conversation about Joe Biden's mental state and where he is at this point in his life as he, you know, ages and moves on into his golden years, I think that most people would have still said, I choose that affirmatively oh. over Trump, who also is like a raving lunatic and says all kinds of things that don't make sense all the time. Like we could have had that honest conversation. It's just weird that it's now to totally taken off the table and the media just pretends that this isn't happening. That's so clearly happening. Well, that's the part that people on the right will never acknowledge because they would make the argument like, if only people knew and we discussed this honestly about Joe Biden, then Trump would have won. And it's yeah. like, I think most people knew and they were like, I'm still, still picking better. that dude still over better. the crazy motherfucker who any minute might launch a nuke on Botswana. <laughs> right. like, you don't know what the fuck Trump is going to do. when you <laughs> I remember when I woke up one day and I looked at Twitter and it was a Trump tweet. And the, the first words were something to the effect of washed up psycho Bette Midler. What? I'm like, <laughs> what the motherfucker, fuck is going on? you're president of the United <laughs> States of America. Go sign a treaty or some shit. You're... Anger tweeting at Bette Midler on the toilet at 3.30 a.m.? What the fuck are you doing? Like, what are you doing? So anyway, when you compare, uh, you know, sweet old grandpa who's tripping over his dick every other word and, you know, megalomaniac narcissist who at any minute would press the, the red button, people yeah. were like, nah, I guess I'll go with the grandpa. And that's to say nothing of them policy-wise, but in terms of the optics of it, yeah. and how like a totally, you know, non-policy-educated voter would look at it, that's what they would think. And when it comes to Biden, listen, one word, drugs. When I see that, I think there's only one thing that could save you now, dog, drugs. Get this man some Adderall, get this man. I, see, I'm not, I don't know enough about that realm of drugs. Like there, yeah. I, there might be some, I don't know if it's an antipsychotic medication or there's something that can make him more whip smart for a short amount of time before he gets on that CNN stage. And I yeah. think that, I honestly, I think, I do think that Joe Biden probably took something before the Bernie debate. And even before one of the Trump debates, because when he was debating Bernie, he went from not knowing where the fuck he is to all of a sudden he was back in 2012. Yeah. Um, and I do think like I'm sure that he has the best minds around him working on what that right cocktail is. But sometimes, you know, 
sometimes when you take the the mix, it really lands for you and you end up with that burning debate. And sometimes you take the mix and the fog doesn't totally go away. Yeah, okay, okay, just so everybody knows, I'm not, I promise you, I'm not making a comparison between Hitler and, oh, and Biden. <laughs> but do you know the shit that Hitler was on? No. You don't know the history of this? No, huh? This motherfucker would wake up and take the world's biggest speedball. Really? He was on heroin and he was on cocaine and I think they would even like inject the shit into him. Whoa. So he would go from like, you know, probably sleepy and whatnot to just screaming in his speeches and shit. So, uh, oh, they got Don Jr. on? Oh, Don Jr. is on a pharmacy. <laughs> that dude is like, are you kidding me? He goes to the pharmacy, and then he also goes and buys black market shit behind a dumpster at Narby's. Yeah. That's Don Jr. Because every time, have, have you ever seen his live streams with his, like, eyes are half shut and they're bloodshot? I mean, he's like, I think you know, only you've, you've sent me a few clips is where I've seen You know, that. listen, folks, the fucking liberals, the liberals, they don't even understand my father's wonderful. Did you see the thing he said the other day? It was like, a, he was on Instagram or something, and it was a picture of Trump with a beard, and the caption was like, imagine Trump comes back in 2024 and runs looking like this. <laughs> and Don Jr. posted it. Like, bro, you missed a bunch of hugs, didn't you, in your life? He <laughs> yes, had to have, right? Yes, he did. He definitely did. Sad. He's a sad man. Um, all right. So one other thing we wanted to talk about here before we bring in Dan is the data is officially in now, and apparently the polls were even more off in 2020 than they were in 2016. And that's not just at the presidential level. That's not just at the national level. That's at the state level. That's down ballot, like really consistent miss in favor of the polls. You know, we're in favor of Democrats by a couple of points, basically everywhere. And, you know, it's funny because after 2016, there was this all this soul searching from the pollsters. Like, what do we get wrong? And they kind of came to this consensus that, oh, we didn't wait by education level. Right. Mm -hmm. So we we're undercounting these non-college educated white voters who tended to come out very strongly for Trump. And so we screwed that up. But don't worry, guys. This time we fixed it. This time the data is right. And so for people who were looking at these polls, even if you were factoring in the amount of miss from 2016, you were still going to be off in terms of your predictions of what would ultimately happen. And basically, nobody has any answers for why this happened. There's a lot of conjecture. And I mean, essentially, the best uh, analysis is that not just the shy Trump voter thing is real, but the shy Republican voter in general. Republicans just not only are they they're not really lying to pollsters when they answer the phone. They're just not answering the phone. They're just not engaging with pollsters whatsoever. And so I think you have to assume with all polling going forward that it is very likely skewed in favor of Democrats. It's just looking pretty yeah. consistent at this point. You know, the pollsters actually say like, we don't know what we got wrong and we don't know how to fix it. They say that, but I think their reason for saying that is they don't know if the next election is going to be six points off mm -hmm. in a pro-democratic direction or if, it's, or if it's going to be two points off in a pro-democratic direction. But they know, like, hey, something's off. But, yeah, they do actually, even though they say we have no answers, they actually do provide their first guess, I think, is the correct guess, which is when you crunch all the numbers, um, there's a four to five point, um, you know, thing for the Democrats. For the, the Democrats are up four to five points. Mm -hmm. uh, and that for the next time, 
I would say just do a 4.5 point, 4.5 point swing in the direction of Republicans. So whatever the numbers are, just add 4.5 points, 4.5 actually, because if you average out the, at the national level and then the state and local level, it came to an average of 4.5. So just do that. And then that'll be your, your best guess. But yeah, in many ways it was a self-fulfilling prophecy because Trump, everybody knows what Trump did. He would go out there and say, fake news is a fake there. You know, these guys are liars. And what happened is there was already sort of a distrust in institutions in this country. And then he ramped that up even more. And now we know only 29% of, of the public has trust in media. We're actually like last in the world mm. in the polling. So yeah, what happened is only like, not just liberals, but like college educated elite liberals are the only ones who are going to answer the phone and, and do a poll. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's going to be skewed in that direction. And until there's institutional trust again, we're not going to get back to like accurate polls, but I don't see institutional trust coming back. I really don't. It's hard to because imagine. if you really think about it, it's not just Republicans that are skeptical of these institutions, but it's the left base, the actual left base, not like the corporate Democrat apologists, right. mm -hmm. you know, yeah. like they're skeptical of institutions too. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think honestly, I remember uh, young Americans, very skeptical. Yeah, for sure. One of the times I was on Rogan's show, he made this point about polls. He's like, who the fuck answers polls? And I was like, Dude, they like they have their formulas. They like they kind of know what they're doing. That was basically my reaction. And it turns out, no, he was right. Like, who the fuck answers polls? Yeah, sometimes that gut instinct reaction is the correct one. Exactly. You know, um, yeah. This says they they found that the surveys overall they looked at two thousand eight hundred fifty eight different polls, including five hundred twenty nine national presidential race polls and fifteen hundred seventy two state level presidential polls. They found the surveys overstated the margin between Biden and Trump by 3.9 points in the national popular vote and 4.3 points in state polls. And cor correct me if I'm wrong. My recollection is in 2016, the state polls were actually more accurate than the national polls. And this time, the national polls ended up being more accurate than the state polls. But neither. I mean, this is a, four points is a huge miss. That is a massive massive difference and obviously changed it from, you know, a Biden blowout to something that was extraordinarily yeah. tight and he barely ekes it out. The other piece, I remember early on, right after the election, um, somebody had the theory that I still think makes sense that uh, it's not just Republicans stopped answering polls and are, you know, super skeptical of all of it. And Trump fed into that. But also you had a bunch of resistance liberals during the pandemic who had a lot of time on their hands. And so it's probably not just that Republicans weren't answering the polls, but that the resistance liberal crew were super excited and amped up to answer the polls more so than usual. So you kind of had a skew in both directions. Yeah, that's a fair point. You know, I thought in 2016 and 2020, actually, the polls were off, but they weren't that off. Because if you look at the margin of error, I think in 2016 and 2020, the results were within the margin of error, right? Like Hillary won the popular vote by however many million, mm -hmm. right? So I don't, I don't know what the percentage ultimately was, 1% or yeah. something like that. She was up, what, three or four mm -hmm. in the polls nationally? Mm -hmm. So that's within the margin of error. Yeah, but, you, but the theory is if, like, that's the margin of error for any one poll. The theory is, though, if you're taking all the polls together, then, you know, the margin of error would be less Tighter than, than what it would be on any in one individual poll. Yeah. Well, the point I was going to make is what we're finding is that even though it was technically within the margin of error, it's always whatever the number is that's more pro-Republican 
for the results is right. what manifests. It's not exactly. It's not a random error. Yes. It's always in one direction, yeah. mm -hmm. which tells you there's a systemic problem. Yeah. Yes. So just add, listen, just add four points then to, to whatever Republican is in question. Yeah. But listen, these things, the final point is these things are always fluid. Politics is not stagnant. Politics is fluid. So, you know, we revisit this in like 15 years. Maybe the dynamic totally flips. Maybe you then know? it's, you never yeah, know. the Republicans right, who are exactly. being overstated, which has happened in the past, by the way, with Obama, the Republicans. I think the Obama-Romney race overstated the numbers for Romney, but not, it wasn't anything like this kind of a mess. True. And remember, in 08 and 2012, this is actually one of the reasons Nate Silver wrote, rose to prominence is that he predicted, I think, all the states correctly in 2008 and then maybe got one wrong in 2012 or something like that. Mm. So that was sort of when this cult of you know, following the pollsters was Cold born. Nate. Yeah, yeah, it was born. And then obviously it's taken quite a few hits recently, to say the least. Yeah, I actually haven't looked to see what Nate Silver has to say about all of this. We'll have to check in. He's busy tweeting about COVID and poker. That's what he does. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, we have a fantastic guest for you, somebody who we both respect a lot, who also we spend a lot of time on his Twitter feed because it's truly excellent. <laughs> um, Dan Price, founder and CEO of Gravity Payments. It's a credit card processing and payment tech company. Um, apparently started in his dorm room when he was 19 years old, which is kind of interesting because he felt like the small businesses that he knew were getting exploited by these credit card processors. What he really became known for, at least in our world, is in 2015, he announced that all of his workers were going to get a $70,000 minimum wage. And he took a massive million dollar personal pay cut in order to make sure that that was the case. He also had... Wait, are you going to give his whole fucking bio? I, I'll have no questions for him. Well, he can explain more. You'll have plenty okay, of questions. But I'm so I want to give like, him a good setup. You're giving his whole life story. I yeah, want to ask him about it. a good setup. He's also the author of a book called Worth It, which you guys should check out. What's his sister's name? Uh, I he has a brother. Oh, I don't okay. Know if he has a sister. All right. How tall is he? Grew up in rural Idaho, conservative Christian. Okay. Thank you. Upbringing. So all good things to talk to him about. All right. Now we'll have elaborate. a five minute conversation with Dan. <laughs> Enjoy. Here's Dan. Dan Price. It is so great to see you again. How are you, my friend? Uh, really good. Thanks for having me on. It's really nice to see you both. Um, it's such a historic week. I think we'll all remember where we were when Jeff Bezos made his incredible <laughs> flight into space. Just your thoughts on that, Dan. <laughs> Well, it was 11 minutes, um, <laughs> so I'll uh, I'll spare the audience from me being too crude about that. But um, <laughs> no, be crude, Dan. Be crude. <laughs> but you know, it was pretty hilarious to think about. Um, I think I saw that he spent a billion dollars per minute or something like that. But I also pointed out how he made a billion dollars that day. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot there, but I think I tried to look at it uh, from the perspective of the American dream, which I think is something that, that you two are both really passionate about. And I think what the American dream is today is that if you work hard, you don't take sick days, you go to, you know, you go to the right schools, you get all the best grades and, and you do all the right things that you can dream that someday your boss will go to space for 11 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just feel like it's just such a That's what the founders great... intended, I think. That is what the founders intended. It's such a great story, but when I made that joke a week ago, I, I had no idea, uh, little did I know that Jeff Bezos would come out and say the same thing. Uh, and say that his Amazon employees paid for his little joyride into space. Uh, so I totally agree with it. But 
I think the thing that I would really love to see that would make me so happy is if Van Van Jones and Jose Andres, who Bezos claims to have given a hundred million dollars, no strings attached attached to whatever charity they want. What would make me really happy is if uh, those two individuals decided that they were going to take that two hundred million dollars and really get behind the Amazon uh, national uh, union drive mm. and extract a few billion dollars out of this guy you know, for the people that actually deserve it, you know, the people that he's taking it from uh, that he just admitted. So, you know, he said he had to go to space because he had so much money. It was the only thing he could spend his money on. So I think um, at this point, Van Jones and Jose Andres have an amazing opportunity to change that forever. And so I hope they do it. I think that would be the, the, the best way for this story to end. That would be incredible. Dan, Not that's actually, uh, that's such a great point. I want to take a moment here and issue that as an actual official challenge to Van Jones. Um, you know, hey, he's one of the better voices on CNN. I know that's like being the tallest kid in kindergarten, but he's one of the better voices on CNN. So, hey, man, go ahead. Like, let, let's yeah. see you put put your money where Teamsters your mouth is on your left value. launching values. a national right? drive to yeah, they did say that. Amazon. That's yeah. right. So, There's you know, the, the Teamsters would love right some of there. that. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, to, just to stay on this point for one, one more second about uh, Bezos and space travel. What I'm, I've been fascinated by, Dan, is like the, the difference between the way the media has been talking about it and how regular people are talking about it. Like I, I ate with my mom the other day and I brought up uh, Bezos going to space and she was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you didn't see that Jeff Bezos went in a dick rocket to space? And she was like... No, because <laughs> she was at work because that's what people do. They work. And so it's weird, though, that like when you turn on the media, there was a clip I covered on my show where that some guy was saying, like, see that black kid who's watching him take off in the rocket. That's one less kid who's going to commit a crime. I was like, oh, God. Oh, God, what are you doing? He literally said that. So, yeah. So yeah. what do you make of that disconnect between regular people and the media? Well, it's it's not a it's not a tough stretch to basically look at that situation and say, imagine what that money could do uh, for that black kid in terms of giving that black kid or all kids, um, you know, a chance to have education, a chance to have their community invest in them. And by the way, you know, kids are pretty much the greatest return on investment you can get. I mean, um, you know, their hopes and dreams and what they want to achieve, like we should spend time and energy and resources really fostering that. And it's not by, again, you know, propping up that terrible American dream that I posited, you know, that really like kind of nefarious version of it. It really should be more of a story of how we can come together and solve the world's greatest problems together with, you know, with public accountability, uh, with these investments being made with, with at least some semblance of public accountability. So, yeah, um, it, it's a it's a sad commentary that, you know, that that there is that disconnect between the media and regular people. But I think it I think it speaks to something that you both talk about quite a bit, which is the media's desperation to just keep our eyes glued to their content 24 hours a day when they don't have, you know, their big, you know, orange star to, to rely mm. on anymore. So mm, I think yep. it's just mm. another you know, another way for them to just try to suck us in. But clearly, you know, if you look at the numbers and what you're saying, Kyle, it's just not working anymore. Talk a little bit more, Dan, about sort of your view and personal experience with the American dream, because 
by all accounts, like you had it, right? You're there, you're, you start this wildly successful company, you're a millionaire at age 30, and you decided there was something about that that was sort of hollow. So reflect on that and also, I mean, I have sort of a, I guess I have a challenged relationship with the American dream because I think in some ways this idea that anyone can make, you just work hard and you can make it to the top, it's very uh, counter-revolutionary because it convinces people that if they don't succeed, it's their fault versus structures and systems and, you know, the government that is keeping you from being able to succeed while some people succeed beyond their wildest, beyond what anyone should possibly be able to accumulate in a lifetime. Yeah, that's a great question, Crystal. I mean, I absolutely hate it when people use my story to sort of prop up the American dream. And as you said, it is kind of counter-revolutionary and can have that negative effect because, you know, I'm a kid from Idaho. I grew up out in the country next to a dump. Like, neither one of my parents went to college. I'm the fourth of six kids, conservative Christian homeschool, like business first family. I mean, I, hmm. I checked all the boxes of like all the different like uh, maybe sources of propaganda, if I can say that. But, <laughs> you know, but um, I hate when people use my story to justify that, that, you know, claiming that the American dream is alive and that it that it exists in some sort of egalitarian way, which it doesn't, because there is a lot of luck, which, you know, is pretty obvious and people will point out, but there's just a lot of just different situations, different opportunities that people have. And so I think that intense focus on individual stories and individual narratives takes our attention away from the macro statistical data, which is really where the proof is. And the proof is that in the United States, you know, we have lower social and economic mobility than they have in you know, most other Western developed countries. And, you know, we have a system that throws people into debt and basically has that debt just kind of grip a hold of them. And, you know, you, you really have two, like in terms of education, which we were told was essential, you know, to go to the highest types of education and then housing, like you need a place to live. And then a third one you can't control, which is medical costs, but it's pretty much going to hit all of us eventually. And you have these three things that are just so like patently unaffordable. Um, and then when you can't even, you know, kind of make the ends meet in general day to day, you know, I think the macro numbers tell that. And I think a focus on, you know, sort of like trying to turn somebody like me into an example or a hero or like proof that it can work. I think it's really um, uh, not a good thing. And I think that um, we need to you know, push back against that and basically remind people like, hey, like, you're right that there are examples of people that are benefiting from this system that we hold up, but we all need to stop doing free PR for billionaires, for wealthy people, for the political establishment by always pointing to those. And we really need to point to just the basic statistics, which is, you know, we've sort of hollowed out middle America in terms of economic opportunity. And that has just continued to spread. And, you know, the the unfairness of it is, you know, getting to an unprecedented level every day. And so it's really the opposite of what we were pitched, you know, in terms of the American dream. And the idea of having a lot of freedom for people, the idea of having a lot of liberty, the idea of having, you know, a justice system that really delivers justice to us as a society, 
those are all like great things that we should go after. But in order to do it, you know, there's some very low hanging fruit that we can take care of in terms of making our system, you know, more equal. And I think a lot of it, and you both have pointed this out so many times, I think a lot of it starts with economics because if you're basically pulling somebody down and they're working two jobs just to make ends meet and sort of, you know, have zero time for themselves, you know, they don't really have time to get involved. They don't really have time to, you know, advocate for the types of positions that would fix these things. And so I think we really have to focus on things like raising the minimum wage, which will have the effect of raising the median wage, which will have the effect of raising wages for the majority of Americans. We should focus on getting health care for everybody. You know, medical me Medicare for all is a pretty obvious solution where we're already spending more than anybody else. And we should, you know, not have such a, a bad system on top of that for what we're getting for what we're spending. Um, and then having, you know, an education system that, frankly, we've had something pretty close to this before in the United States not that long ago where, you know, people could either go to public college for free or, you know, they could afford it with a, you know, 10 hour week job or something like that. You know, um, of course, it should just be free now because we should have made enough progress between then and now. But, you know, you solve these really basic things. And what does that look like? It looks like a population that has a lot more power and a lot more influence, a lot more time to, you know, shape um, what we're going to be and how we're going to look, you know, in a, a way that's a lot more healthy and inclusive. So uh, there's a million questions I want to ask you. Um, you touched on a couple of solutions there. I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts on like unionization versus worker co-ops or do you like both of those things? Do you like yeah. the idea of like, pay ratio rules because i know you literally made it so that you get paid the same as your workers would you because i've been toying with this idea in my mind should there be a rule that like ceos can't make more than 10 times their their workers what do you think i think it's a good idea i just worry that there's some way to engineer around if the solutions mm. are too kind of precise and piecemeal because mm. i think about you know, like, you know, Google does some really awful things, but they pay their employees a lot because anybody that they don't want to pay a lot, they just don't classify them as an employee. Right. So, right. you know, it would have to be paired with something to make it kind of more broad. But I guess the one really obvious thing that I didn't point out, um, you know, that that should go with this is just like a high tax rate. You know, we right. should have 50 yeah. plus percent effective taxes for wealthy people. Like it's just, it's just kind of like, I think that that's why I'm attracted to the big broad ones. And, and Kyle, it's interesting you asked me this question because after I made my announcement to take my pay cut in 2015, I had a lot of people basically saying, Dan, we need you to come up with something equivalent to like the billionaire pledge, you know, where everyone can follow. So you need to find exactly what rules but, you know, it's been tried and there's just so many loopholes and ways that people kind of engineer around the rules. And that's led me to kind of just focus on the big, broad, systemic stuff primarily. And then I think that um, some of what we're going at, too, can be done through maybe more precise regulation if we had, you know, an executive branch and a president who was, you know, very pro people and pro trying to help people because, you know, right now, the the president has the authority to cancel, you know, at least a, a good amount of student debt isn't doing it. 
Uh, and Zephyr Teachout has pointed out that the president has the authority to go after a lot of these antitrust violations that the, mm. these huge companies and these tech companies and are, you know, literally just choosing not to do it or, or choosing not to make that decision. So I think some of those precise ones can be sort of set in uh, in, in in certain ways with with these sorts of rules. But I think the the broad stuff, the big stuff, I think there's really no substitute for it because people just cheat their way around the smaller stuff. Just just real quick. So you said, uh, you know, higher taxes on the wealthy. Could you just elaborate a little more? So do you like a wealth tax? Do you like higher marginal tax rates? Do you like eliminating the loopholes? And what, what do you think of unionization for one more thing? Yes. And all, all the above, Kyle, you okay. got it all. And I and I think we can go on the top end of what's you know been proposed out there on all of those things and still be in a great place financially for the wealthy people. In terms of unionization and worker co-ops, I mean, it's a tough question for me because you know we we work really well together at Gravity and and in some ways we sometimes kind of act like we're union run, but we don't have true like authority or ownership, you know, for our workers. So, you know, I think that's a tough thing that we need to wrestle with at Gravity and have those conversations. But we do all of our big decisions in strategic planning through a group of representatives. This year, we had 55 of our 200 people that were in on all the planning meetings and that were nominated by the other 200. And so I love the idea of unions. One of my best friends is a member of the Longshoremen's Union. And it's one of the top unions ever in the history of the world, and they do such a great job for their workers. So, I think I think we need to be pro-union, pro-worker uh, co-op. I don't quite understand though, because you know a lot of people will point out problems uh, with unions, but I think that they forget that the problem of not having unions is a much bigger problem than right. any problem that unions you know are responsible for. Union leadership. Anytime you have power, leadership, you're going to have the opportunity for some level of bad behavior, corruption, ineffectiveness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But not having that union at all um, is, is not acceptable. So we need to have strong unions. And I want to see more co-ops, you know, competing and, and succeeding. And I haven't quite figured out, you know, how I can be part of that. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of People on Twitter want me to convert my company to a worker co-op, but that would be a very long, uh, long thought out decision if we were going to do anything like that. Yeah, well, one of the things I know that's a barrier is uh, the system in, in the U.S. is actually set up against co-ops. So the sort of sh shut out in a lot of ways from the traditional uh, financial system and availability of loans and those sorts of things, which makes it very hard for a lot of co-ops to get off the ground and succeed. But like in Italy, for example, there's a, a very proud and sizable um, tradition of worker-owned co-ops that compete successfully against the... Spain or Italy? I think it was Spain, in, the one it, Richard Wolf talks about. Well, you're thinking there's one in Spain, but there's also okay. uh, one part of Italy where the whole region, something like 33% oh. of the businesses, I'm pulling that out of my head, but it's some, it's some sizable, like 33% of the businesses are actually worker-owned co-ops because of the way... Now I'm really going down a rabbit hole, <laughs> but because of the way that Italy's... Unemployment insurance works. They actually say if you lose your job, you can either get unemployment insurance or you can band together 
with some of your fellow workers who also lost their jobs and get a lump sum to start a worker-owned co-op. So they have Mm. written into their constitution um, a support for worker-owned co-ops. Here in the U.S., we have sort of the opposite deal where it's discouraged and they make your life difficult. Um, So anyway, that's that's my worker co-op rabbit hole for the day. Uh, Dan, I wanted well, to ask Crystal, you about... That, that, makes think a little bit of, that makes me think a little bit of, uh, you know, how uh, UBI could be a, a positive for us, mm. right? Because I think right. that, I think any way that you can put resources into those people's hands, you're going to have more competition in the, and the world's going to be a better place. But right now our system is designed, as you're pointing out, to actually limit the number of participants unnaturally. And so for all of the you know, talking neoliberalism from both Democrats and Republicans about the glories of the free market. You know, what you're pointing out is how they actually unnaturally limit competition and the type of companies that can provide products and services to just help us live our lives. Yeah, exactly. The the region in Italy, I just is Emilia Romana, and then Mondragon mm-hmm. is the company that you're thinking. That's of what I was thinking Spain. of. Correct. So yeah. anyway, this mm-hmm. is all from Richard Wolf, who's incredible. Oh, have you to Mondragon or to well, Emilia? Just to Amelia Romagna, I've been there oh, one really? time. Quite delightful, yeah. I was I Lovely. was just in the country, just you know, at like this house, just in the middle of nowhere. So the, the commies didn't ruin it all for you. It was okay. Uh, you know, that's the thing because you know, for all of our pointing out about how like the the awfulness of socialism and commies and all these countries, you know. Uh, pretty much any American that goes to visit some of them, you know, has a pretty fun time, nice time. And you get to see all the little family owned businesses and everything. And not that it's perfect. Of course, they have their own problems, but it's pretty nice to go there and, and see how they do things. There's a lot to be said for excuse me, Venezuela, Cuba, Soviet Union. That's right. Those are the only uh... end of conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, Don't Dan, get me I started wanna... on Cuba, Kyle. You're gonna get me in trouble. Well, yeah, we may too. get you started on Cuba. Now you've given us an enticing invitation. Um, I wanted to ask you going back to it was 2015 when you made this decision. Is that correct? And and took the pay cut and decided to institute the seventy thousand dollar minimum wage. This really touched a nerve. I remember interviewing you. I was at MSNBC at the time. So there was a lot of people like myself who were like excited about this idea and that you were um, you were taking this step. But there was also like this very strong backlash of people who were actually angry and like upset with you that you were doing this. Why do you think that it touched such a nerve at the time and has continued to be sort of very controversial? Well, I was surprised at how big the story got uh, at first because, you know, I, I made the announcement. I, I, I knew I'd had some coordination with some some press outlets, so I knew it would get some coverage, but I didn't think it would blow up, you know, the way it did and become such a worldwide known story. And then I think that scared those people because it basically just provided an alternative that was pretty simple and obvious. And it was like the idea that workers should just, you know, get, you know, like, something closer to their fair share of the value they're creating with the company that they build. I mean, it, it, it just was super obvious. And then the other thing that was obvious, another way of looking at it is like a company should pay you enough that they're not actively harming your health and well-being by paying you too little. So these were just like, I think, pretty obvious concepts that had been probably intuitively known for people for a long time. And I think this story just gave them something to kind of, um, you know, talk about in in relationship to that knowledge that they already had. 
And so then you had uh, a lot of the media, a lot of the mainstream media, but in particular, uh, the conservative media, and then a little bit some of the mainstream media too, really, uh, as you said, getting up in arms about it. And the, the most famous lines were from Rush Limbaugh saying that this would be a case study in MBA programs about how socialism does not work because it's going to fail. Mm. That was followed on by Fox News, who said that my employees would be on the bread lines because of my terrible, selfish decision. <laughs> and I think, I think the way that connects to, to the larger conversation in a way is just that whenever you don't like something, just scream socialism. You know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I just don't want regular people to make enough money to like live a normal life. Like I don't want regular people to do better, you know, so I'm going to scream socialism. And it was really hard to look at it any other way to see these, these media outlets, you know, not only predicting that we would fail, but rooting for us to fail. And still on Rush Limbaugh's website to this day, there's an entire page dedicated to Rush Limbaugh spiking the football on me because we are, clearly now out of business because the New York Times did a big story about how, you know, the backlash was like dramatic for us, which was, you know, kind of true, I guess. But Rush Limbaugh still on his website, you know, he's passed away, but on his website still says that we failed and my, fa my face is plastered all over that page of the website. So it's like, but I, I think that the big takeaway is just like how, to me was just how, you know, when they see something they don't like, they just will say and scream anything that will work. And the 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 insult du jour for the last little bit has just been socialism. But you can see through these sorts of examples because that that it's not gonna work and people are figuring out what the game is because six years later, you know, I posted a video on uh, on Twitter of all these people saying all these things about me, and then I showed what the results were, which were our company tripled, our oh. employee attrition rate was cut in half, which is why we were so much more productive, because employees could stick around. It's not rocket science. And then the employees really thrived. There were two people that lost over 100 pounds because they didn't have to commute an hour and a half each day anymore, and they could just rededicate themselves to their health, wow. which I know you both are very passionate about, as am I. And, uh, you know, they took advantage of their freedom because, and again, I'm not a hero for this, like they know how to spend their money better than I do. Like, it's just that simple. And, and so they basically, uh, you know, started buying homes. We had a 10x increase in first time home ownership. Wow. Um, we had a 10x increase in people having babies. They went from our employees went from having zero to two babies a year to like 10 to 15 um, uh, in total. And people uh, paid down debt. 70% of people paid down debt. 35% got debt free. And they between doubled and tripled their savings for retirement. And so all of these insults and tropes about how, you know, people that don't have financial resources, like they have some sort of moral failing you know, we just have a before and after that proves that wrong 100%. But I will say, Crystal, I did fail in a way. And it was a tough lesson for me to learn because the way I was raised in that conservative Christian family that was all about business first, that encouraged me to work 18 hours a day, five, six days a week, 
I regret doing that. And some people will point out, well, that's, you know, easy for you to say now that, you know, you're successful and you have all the the benefit of of doing that that worked out for you. But, you know, a lot of people work just as hard as I did and don't get anything from it other than debt. And then also it really takes a toll on one's mental and physical health to to put yourself through that. And so I think a system that basically holds somebody like me up as successful is a failing system because I don't think that should be the example of success. We should have more well-rounded examples of success. And I think that I thought at the time, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I thought at the time that if I basically proved that this could work and went around shouting it from the rooftops, you would have private companies basically following suit and you'd have sort of an uprising of consumers demanding that companies treat treat their employees this way and and do business in this way. And that clearly absolutely did not happen because the problem of income inequality and the problem that we were addressing on a micro level that we really in many ways solved at Gravity Payments got worse. And so I was really proven wrong in my belief in the American system, in, you know, kind of the macro, you know, like ability to solve these things through competition. And what it taught me, and it was a really hard lesson, again, because of the political ideology that I was raised with, but it just taught me that these issues are systemic. They can only be fixed systemically. And, uh, you know, it's great for the 210 people that I work with. Like, we're all really happy about it. I'm happier than I've ever been, even though I'm making less money than I've made since I was in my early Mm -hmm. 20s. Mm -hmm. But I'm happier than I've ever been because it's nice to go to a place where you know that everybody has their needs met. Um, but you know, the, the problem that we were inspired to try to solve of the more like, you know, having this spread elsewhere, you know, there were a few other companies that followed suit that had the same result. So we proved it's not a one-off, but yet, you know, you have zero big companies following suit and I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Hmm. Dan, there's literally like 700 things I want to say in response to that. That was all so fascinating. Um, uh, so I'm going to get to the to the big question in a second, which is I want to dive into why you think it is that there weren't more that followed suit and did what you did. But I put that on the back burner for a second. Um, to your Rush Limbaugh point, I love how dumb they are because they what they always say is don't like, you know, don't change like the minimum wage laws, for example. Don't change any of the laws. If in a capitalist context, you want to treat your workers better, just voluntarily treat your workers better and we'll all be in favor of it then you come along and do exactly that. You voluntarily, under a capitalist economy, start treating your workers better, and they're like, well, this is fucking socialism. You can't do this. So I just love, like, they just come out as like, I'm a colossal prick. Like, that's basically their argument. Like, I just want to be an asshole that pays people nothing. So that made me laugh. Um, And then I also... What what I love about that you pointed that out, because I think that's such a great point, the obvious response to them is, okay, well, you're saying that the private market can't fix this problem. Right. I mean, they're just admitting right. it, right? That's yeah. exactly right. So, yes, that, that stuck with me when you said that. The other thing that I thought was hilarious is they argued that your workers would be on the breadline. You're literally paying them more. That would be the opposite of the breadline. It's like, you know what that reminded me of? When the debate was happening on health care and the Republican talking point was, Medicare for all is Medicare for none. <laughs> right. 
That's the exact opposite of what we're saying. We're saying it's for all, not none. So anyway, these guys are so ridiculous. Um, so but, two, but Kyle, Kyle yeah. let, me, let me quickly respond to that too, though, because, yep. you know, I, I was sort of like knit together in CEO school. You know, I've been studying to do this my whole life and, you know, read all these books of like, you know, you like like Jack Welch type ideology, you know, this mm. idea that mm. it's a it's a competitive imperative to basically treat your people in a hor in a horrific way and basically just try to squeeze them. And you see the culmination of that ideology in Amazon. Like that's what we're seeing every day. But one thing to keep in mind is we're teaching all of our young CEOs and all of our young leaders that that's the only way to do business. And in some ways, it's not wrong because that's the only way you can really get the entire financial apparatus to unite behind what you're doing as an entrepreneur is if you're willing to go to those lengths in a right. very nefarious way. And so I think it's just such a great point you make. And I think we need to keep in mind, like, there is a an ideology that is so strong, I think we can almost think of it as a religion. And I think the things mm. you're pointing out prove that. Yeah. So well said. All, all well said. My two questions, one of them is a super quick yes or no. And then the other one is for you to elaborate on why there aren't more people like you in, in this system. But did you get that 70,000 number from the study that came out years back that basically said 70,000 is the number where your happiness increases until you get to 70,000 and then 70,000, it just tapers off. Is that where you got that number from? And why aren't there more people like you now doing this? Yes, that is partially where I got it from. Also, it's just through conversations with friends. Mm -hmm. the, the The initial raise was inspired by a few different people, but the two people that inspired it the most are Reseda Barlow, who's worked at Gravity for like 16 years and was moonlighting at McDonald's. And so she, she and I like were talking about like how do we like shift this so somebody in your position doesn't need to be doing this. And then my other friend, Valerie, who didn't work at Gravity, but had a $200 rent increase. So I was just talking to them, but absolutely. And I think the way to frame that differently, Kyle, that I agree with what you said, but I think the way to frame it differently is if you're making less than that amount, it's hurting mm. your well-being, it's hurting mm. your health. As a po because it's not, people say money doesn't buy happiness, but money can take away your happiness. And so when you give money to uh, people that aren't making enough, it's actually been proven to be the most effective antidepressant mm. in the world. And so it, it really is this type of thing where more money helps you to a point in a big way. And then once you get to that point, more money doesn't really help you nearly as much. Hmm. And so what do you think is the reason that fewer, that not very many people followed in your footsteps? Because I do find, think it's really interesting. You came up with this conservative Christian upbringing and you almost took like a personal responsibility right. yeah. approach to, you know, solving this problem of income inequality. You, you married like this, you know, sort of like lefty political philosophy with these bootstraps personal responsibility Christian upbringing you're like I'm gonna do the thing I'm gonna show it can be done I'm gonna show it can be successful you did all of that and still it's mostly crickets from your fellow CEOs well um I'm gonna have to think about that one Crystal but I feel like you both have have actually done the exact same thing in your own ways because you both have started you know various organizations that have been really influential and really successful and had a huge you know outsized influence um and, and that does take, you know, like, I don't think that people on the left are against 
personal responsibility at right. all. I think yes. I think the people on the left are like, no, let's give people power so they can actually take that personal responsibility. Let's stop taking the opportunity away from them to take personal responsibility. And so I, I do think that those two things don't need to be opposed, but why did nobody follow suit? Um, we have a we have a, a competitor at Gravity Payments. So just to explain what we do at Gravity Payments, basically like when you use your credit card, we move the money, keep the data secure. And it's very unfair for small businesses just to accept a credit card or form electronic payment. And there's this like racket, like this monopoly hidden tax that goes to like, for example, Visa, which has 50% operating margins. So they don't really do a lot. They just collect a bunch of money. Like that's their business model. Take everybody's money. And the, 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 the financial markets greatly reward that type of behavior. And Warren Buffett uh, talked about a competitive moat. You know, that was his philosophy. And basically what he said is, you want to put yourself in a position where you don't actually have to compete, where you have this, what he calls pricing power of a monopoly. And then more recently, Peter Thiel, who was an advisor to President Trump, but is a longtime Silicon Valley you know, tech entrepreneur and investor. And he is the main mentor to Mark Zuckerberg. So if you want to look at how what a failure Mark Zuckerberg has been as a leader, you can look at his mentor, Peter Thiel. And Peter Thiel said, competition is for losers. Your goal should be to create a monopoly so you can act with impunity. He pointed out there's only three ways to become a billionaire. You can inherit it, you can commit some sort of crime or corruption, or you can create a monopoly because you cannot become a billionaire unless you can act with impunity. And we see that every day. And so the financial markets are, are motivated by these sorts of messages that ring true for them. And they basically say, if a company wants to just sort of be on the up and up, you can't really make a lot of money in that way. You can't make the huge, enormous returns that they want to see to have this increasing concentration of wealth and power on their ledger where they want to see, you know, more zeros when they log on to their, you know, online banking screen that like a, just a straight up approach to business where you, you know, very simply like treat your employees well so that they take care of your customers and have a good company. And you saw this because I, I see this up close because one of my competitors that you all probably have heard of Square, they um, about a year and a half ago just instituted a 10 cent fee increase across their entire customer base. All these small businesses, they just sent them a memo. We're increasing your fees. And their uh, value of their company, you know, increased, I don't know the exact amount, but it like doubled or tripled over the coming, you know, several months after that, because it was a proof and a down payment to Wall Street that once we get the leverage over everybody that we're trying to control and corral in our ecosystem where we have a monopoly, we're going to be willing to squeeze them and give you that money. And so that sort of promise is the promise that sells in the world of startup founders, CEOs, entrepreneurs today. And so all of the energy, if I go to a, a networking event where it's a bunch of entrepreneurs and CEOs, all the energy is about how to create those monopolies where you can kind of control everybody. And there's very little energy about how to create like just a good business, like a traditional business that just serves people and does a good job. And so it's just not where those people's heads are at. Hmm. And I think that the the macroeconomic forces 
they're tied to income inequality because when you have this extreme concentration of wealth at the top, that money needs to be invested. And those people believe they have a strong sense of entitlement that they're, they are entitled to 5% risk-free returns on an annual basis for their money. But to get them that in this economy where there's not as much innovation, where we're not pushing forward as much as a society, the only way to do it is what economists call rent-seeking, basically just squeezing everybody. And so that's where the energy is in our economy right now, and it's absolutely systemic. So you sound like Very revealing. like you'd be in favor of, you know, uh, anti-monopoly enforcement, right? Like antitrust laws being enforced and breaking them all up and getting more competition, make them all smaller and actually have competition as opposed to the monopolies running the show. Yeah, I mean, if you let Mark Zuckerberg buy, you know, two thirds of his competitors and a third of them say, you know, forget you, we're not selling out, but he can take the two thirds he does buy and copy all the features of the third mm. that he doesn't buy and kill them that way. To just make sure. So it becomes less about money and it becomes more about control when right. you don't enforce those anti-monopoly you know, provisions. And what we need is for President Biden to show up tomorrow and announce, I'm directing my Justice Department to fully enforce the laws that we currently have on the books of not having monopolies and not artificially limit it the way he has to only things that affect consumer prices. Because if it affects, it affects employees, if it affects consumer choice, if it affects the long-term makeup of our economy, you know we see the effects of that. And President Biden can do this all on his own. He doesn't need Joe Manchin. He can just wake up tomorrow and decide to do it. Yeah. And this is one area where there are yeah, at least some uh, some promising indications. You've got Lena Khan <laughs> at it. the FTC. Mm -hmm. um, you've got Tim Wu. You've got now Jonathan Cantor, who's just been um, put in place uh, to head the DOJ's antitrust position, which is what we division, which is something that we've been waiting on. So we'll see. So far, it's a lot of talk and some good people in place, but not the action that we really need. Dan, how do other CEOs, when you're at these like you know CEO conferences with all the other with all the other fancy people, how do they look at you? How do they think about you? Um, I've gotten a range. There's a, a small minority of them who are just diehards who basically hate me. And uh, <laughs> there, 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 there was a CEO in my in my industry that I used to read about when I was a kid, and like. You know, I would really look up to this guy and what he said because he didn't go far enough, but he was taking the industry like slightly in the right direction. And I admired that he was at least doing something. And mm -hmm. I went up to him at a conference one time and I introduced myself and he was nice initially. And then he's like, remind me your name. And I told him my name and he just said F you and walked away. Whoa. So Jeez. that that sort of that happens sometimes. Most of the time they just think I'm cute. Um, uh. Little pat and on the head. That's yeah, adorable what you're doing like, over there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like the cute, adorable, you know, or they, you know, they'll point out that I'm, you know, probably fair critique that I look like a hippie or a stoner. So, you know, that's probably more. <laughs> I go Jesus. More Jesus. <laughs> and, based, Jesus and based on your actions, that's not far off. <laughs> probably a stoner. So there you go. <laughs> I will yeah. tell you, though, something crazy that happened to me, which was I had a professional stalker for over two years that was working like 80 hours a week just stalking and harassing. And it Whoa. was one thing with me, but they were also stalking and harassing my friends and family. 
any public appearances I did at the time, they would have called you guys, you know, like right after this came out at Whoa. the time. And I was like, who is paying this guy? Because he just doesn't seem like he would have the financial wherewithal to spend, you know, 80 hours a week stalking me as opposed to, you know, doing whatever he needs to, to live his own life. And uh, I, 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 I received information that the CEO who had said F you at the conference was paying this guy and feeding him sort of half-truth information, you know, that was sort of like gonna be hard to disprove. And so I, I received some 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 tips and evidence that this guy was paying him. And so I called his his head lawyers, chief legal officer, and I said, Hey, I'm hearing this, so I'm gonna investigate this. And I'm going to come after you guys if I find anything. But if I never hear from this guy again, then I'm not going to investigate it. And we can just kind of move on. And I never heard from the guy again after that. Wow. And, and so it, it seemed to be pretty, you know, I, I don't want to like, you know, say more than I know. But it's just like it seemed to be confirming that, you know, that this guy had hired somebody to stalk me. And when you have somebody that's got, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars at stake, where somebody like me, you know, doesn't really help his wealth or doesn't help his worldview, you know, paying somebody, you know, a couple hundred thousand bucks to just bother somebody else because you're allowed to and and whatnot, you know, becomes an option. And that was pretty, uh, pretty sick for me to have to experience that for a couple of years. That's psychopathic. I mean, that yeah. truly is like it was the CIA, Dan. It was <laughs> definitely truly, the CIA. <laughs> but that's really, that actually um, something that I wanted to ask you is like. You kind of give the impression, which I think is something I would definitely believe, that the training you get and the social reinforcement you get as a CEO is basically that to consider anything other than the bottom line is weakness, to certainly to consider humanity. They'd say is, stupidity. Is, yeah. some, is stupid, right. is weak, is something to be looked down on, to be hated or condescended to is the way that you're treated. I mean, does this incentivize people to be basically sociopaths and does it also attract a disproportionate number of sociopaths because if the idea is in order to be successful you need to not give a shit about humanity well that's kind of the definition there well absolutely because the the way that you're measured as an entrepreneur and as a ceo is based on how much wealth you create and the wealth you create is based on a multiple of whatever earnings you can project and if you're willing to basically treat your workers like crap and treat your customers like crap and find some way that even though they all hate you, they still have to do business with you. And we all know so many businesses and industries like that, where we really hate the companies in that industry, but we still use them anyway because there's no alternative. Yeah. That is, that's the way to create that best bottom line and the highest valuation for your company in the current environment. And so if you're focused on anything other than that, and and then, of course, you have to play lip service. So what do you do? You you know, you you lean on the social, you know, the social kind of divisive issues of the day and you use those issues to basically distract people. And you you virtue signal as a CEO, as a corporation with those social um, mm. issues, which are really important issues but you kind of use them as a diversion tactic to essentially continue to take power away from the people you're claiming to support. And the best example of this, and you know, he's just infinitely, we have to pick on him as much as possible, is Bezos, because he goes out there and says Black Lives Matter, and then he breaks up a union in Bessemer, Alabama, mm. just trying to allow people to have 
enough money to literally live, not thrive, live. And so, you know, so that's an example of like, it doesn't cost him anything to go out there and make that statement. But when the rubber meets the road, you don't do it. And so they, the, the corporations and the people kind of in my world, the cool kids, as you say, they just focus on what are those issues they can focus on where it won't actually lead to any change. It'll just lead to endless discussion. That's a great point, Dan. And, you know, I thought the same thing that it's so easy for a company to throw up like a rainbow logo during Pride Month or, yeah. you know, a CEO takes a knee and Pride puts Month, a fist brought up to you or by something. Raytheon or whatever. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> but like, yeah, pay your fucking workers more. You know, LGBTQ workers need money in order to live and black workers and minority workers need money in order to live. And we all do. Right. So, yes, it, you, you make a phenomenal point. Um, you know, it struck me that as you were talking there, yeah, CEOs view you as like a traitor to the club, which is why they're so angry. Um, earlier, you alluded to how you sort of regret being a workaholic for such a long time. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. What do you think is the ideal work-life balance? Do you have a policy for your company in terms of how much time people get off? Are you personally maybe thinking flirting with a four-day work week or something? Talk to me a little about that. Oh, that is such a good question, Kyle. Um, and it's a tough question for me because different than pay, I think I'm still evolving quite a bit more in, in that issue. But I mean, if I just think about it intuitively, like what would be like a healthy amount to work? And I know that the three of us are going to be probably three of the most hypocritical people in the world on this one because we yeah. all work <laughs> a lot. But if we just think about what would be a health, the healthiest optimal amount to work? To me, it seems like it's probably about like 30 or 35 hours a week. Like if I'm just thinking about like just optimizing for health. And then I think economically, can we all, if we make the right investments, be pr productive enough in 30 to 35 hours a week to produce all the goods and services that we need? And I think the answer is with the right infrastructure, with the right public investments, with the right education system and all that and the right kind of, you know, working together behind it. I think we absolutely can do that. So it works both at a societal level and kind of in an individual level. But my personal legacy and the legacy of my company is small businesses are getting screwed by this system and, you know, they get no support and like the technology sucks and they're paying way too much. And we're basically going to break our necks to try to fix that. That's kind of how the company got started. So we're coming from a good place in a way, but arguably kind of a bad place because like we just were willing to just do whatever it took. And, you know, I literally went through stretches where, you know, I visited like 20 cities in like 25 days and, you know, crazy things like that. And I'm I, I know both of you have, have really pushed yourselves, you know, beyond the limits as well. So it's like, I think we're trying to move toward a better work-life balance, and I think it can be understandably upsetting potentially to our employees to have their, you know, CEO out there saying like, "Hey, you know, we need to work toward a 35-hour work week." If they're currently working, you know, 55 hours a week, and they feel like their workload is just too much. So my message to the company is: this is our number one problem right now internally. We still have our mission of like helping small businesses. But this is the number one problem. And what does it need to look like? I think that for young, for, for people that are not raising kids, I think probably a four-day work week is the is the solution and the thing to go to. 
and a true four day work week, not four tens, but you know, four sevens or something more mm -hmm. like that. And I think for somebody that is raising uh, kids that are sort of like at the school age, I think for them, it probably makes more sense to have, you know, like a five hour work day or something like that, because the kid is at school and you can kind of go to work and you can have some kind of synchronicity with your schedule with the with the the kids in school. So I think it's a, a slightly different solution depending on what life stage you're at. But I think that I mean, I'm curious to actually know both of your thoughts because I'm trying to figure this out. But to me, intuitively, 30 to 35 hours feels like the healthy amount. What do you think? Well, there's also like, you know, it's it's not an accident that the three of us work a lot of hours because we all are really, really into what we do. Right. So, and yeah. we have a lot of control over how we spend those hours. You know, That's it's a our unique choice. position. We're in a unique position. Very unique yeah. position to be in. Yeah. And so to me, when I think about these work-life balance questions, what's the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is for people to have lives that are filled with like purpose and meaning and that are fulfilling to them. And so um, it is hard to say, you know, for any individual person, like this is the number of hours. Do I think that we should have government regulations saying, you know, further limiting the work week, four day work week. And Better overtime gonna, rules. And yeah. with overtime rules. Absolutely. But on an individual basis, you know, I'm very, very happy doing the amount of work that I do. I love it. I wouldn't change it. Like, I wouldn't change any aspect. In fact, you know, starting Breaking Points was all about having complete control over my schedule, actually. So um, one of the things that they found in studies is that the more that workers have a say and feel like they have, like, a democratic say and control in their own workplace— the more satisfying they find that experience ultimately to be. So I think all of these pieces kind of have to go together. Yeah, Dan, uh, great I, point. I, that that was all. I agree with all that, but I'll give a little bit more of a simple answer. You know, assuming that the system is what it is right now. I mean, there was a poll that we talked about where apparently yeah. only fifteen percent of people feel quote engaged at work, which is just strikes me as like yeah. a roundabout way of saying like only 15% are sort of happy and fulfilled doing yeah. their job. Really sad. And that's, in a, that's a, a crisis in and of itself. That's a scandal. But given yeah. that fact of reality, you know, if I was emperor for a day, I would do like a 30-hour work week and I would change it to, to a four-day work week. Uh, because yeah. the fact of the matter is most people are not happy at work. And, you know, I, it's, hard, it's hard to conceptualize changing that very quickly overnight. But what we can change quickly overnight is... Like all the studies have shown that have just been coming out one after the other, uh, people are either equally as productive or more productive if they go to a four-day work week because they're more energized, they're more engaged at the moment, you yeah. know? And uh, so, yeah, I would do a four-day work week for sure. But, you know, even if that wasn't the case, even if it wasn't the case that people could get all their work done during that time, they're equally or more productive, I don't actually think it's healthy for society to only center everything around work, yeah, GDP, like our entire right. yeah. identity, Absolutely. how we're spending all of our living, breathing hours, like who our social circles are, all of that defined around the workplace. I don't think that has ultimately been a good thing for society. Um, what do you think about that, Dan? I completely agree. And I think you made so many good points, but it reminds me of a, a author named Dan Pink. He wrote a book called Drive, and he talked about how what really motivates us to do our best work is autonomy, mastery, and purpose, what he calls intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that limiting the amount of time where we don't have autonomy, where we are not in control of what we're doing, 
um, I think is sort of the big theme. And so obviously we can either increase autonomy, uh, but I think that I just feel like we've demonstrated that that does have some limits because, you know, I, if I have regrets as a CEO, I regret, you know, letting somebody work, you know, for six months without taking any time off, mm. even though they were saying they were really happy. I really don't think it was a good thing for their health. And they were sort of maybe enjoying it. But, you know, but like, I just think that there's just a, a limit to like, you know, we just need to like take, I personally think it's a great use of time in the middle of the workday to just chill out and do nothing and just let your brain relax for a little bit. Yeah. So I think we need more, we need to build more of that. And I think that I agree with you that we should not center things on productivity and GDP and all that, but I think that it's not really going to hurt those things anyway. And so even if it did, it shouldn't matter, but we should, um, I mean, I think this work from home thing is a perfect example because, you know, people are saying, oh, you got to go to the office to be more productive. But if you look at, you know, people's numbers and everything, people are hugely productive working from home if the job allows for it. You know, at Gravity, we had our best month ever in May, in, in April, we followed it up with our best month ever again in, in May and June. So, you know, and we haven't gone back. It, what do you think that's about the number of CEOs that are coming out and saying, and Wall Street banks that are coming out and saying, you got to get your butt back in the seat. You got to be back in the it, office. What do you, what do you think that stems it, from? It's control. That's it's right. control. And, they, and right. they want to have an excuse. I think all, I think a number of these topics that we've been talking about, if not all of them, really come back to power and control first and foremost. And then it's like, what's the rationalization that allows me to control this other person? And that's when they talk about innovation and productivity and like, oh, there's just a certain magic that happens that you can't explain, even in the face of all the evidence saying the opposite. So I think it's all about, I think what we need to be about is giving autonomy to people. And I think what we need to recognize as the system is designed to take it away. And that's so funny, Kyle, because these would be the same people who would be like so data-driven. I only look at the numbers, et cetera, et cetera. But then when it comes to something where it's like, I want to have this control, it's like, there's just some unquantifiable magic You're that right. I can't yeah. quite explain yeah. what happens when everybody's in their cubicle. Can't work at home, can't have a four-day work week, <laughs> even though the data is showing that that potentially actually increases productivity. Because you're right, it's about control. Um, so let's talk a little bit about labels. How, do you identify as... Uh, social democrat, socialist, leftist, populist, humanistic capitalist, or whatever goofy thing Yang said. How do you identify? <laughs> well, I would say socialist has really just become something to scare boomers, right? Like, right. That, like yeah. that term, what does it really mean? You know, because the nice thing about words is when we all share a definition of a word, we can use that word and we all know what it means. We can use it to communicate. But that's a word that sends five people in five different directions in terms of what it means. True. And yeah. so I really I really struggle with the labels because of that, because, yeah, I, I certainly believe in, a, you know, in in a, a much greater sense of equity and equality and fairness in our financial system. I believe in giving people autonomy that to me seems to be in line with the original promise of America. Now I realize that promise never came true, so it was sort of like a hollow promise. But I, I, I don't, I don't know why, you know, why we've gotten so kind of like divisive around these labels. Mm. 
And I, I think about, you know, some of, some of the conundrums that that puts people into in terms of like, how do they label themselves? Because in doing that, you're going to either endear yourself to a group or like completely turn off some other group. Right. And so I, I really, I don't know. I, I, I don't think about it too much, but I would say that, um, I would say that, you know, like I, I, I love the work that you both are doing, um, because I think that it speaks to a realignment that's happening where we're kind of figuring out that a lot of the politicians are on the same team and we have to work together and try to find some pathway. And they've basically set up the whole system to make it impossible for even if we agree 60 or 70 percent of us on some very obvious solutions and obvious programs, we still can't get those things in. And so, you know, so I think that um, we need to try to figure out a way to realign and come up with some labels that make sense to people. And if that's socialist or anything else, like I really don't care. And I think it's just a matter of laying all the groundwork that you all are doing that I'm trying to do every day to basically allow people to see beneath the labels to what's actually going on. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, Dan, um, you said something early on in this conversation. You said that you're happier now than you've ever been before, including when you were, you know, the young millionaire and everything was going bananas and you had a lot more wealth than you have now. And I think there's something very, even though that's obviously personal to your particular experience, but I think there's very something very profound about the fact that the promise we're offered in America is like, if you succeed and if you achieve this level of wealth and success, et cetera, you're going to be happy. You're going to be fulfilled. Like, that's the thing to spend all of your waking hours aiming for. And you achieved that thing. And I don't know that you were like unhappy then or miserable then, but doing something different has actually given you more happiness and more meaning. Um, why do you think that is? Like, what do you think are the lessons that we could draw from that? I think that the this the this the design of the system is basically if you sacrifice your morals, your values, your time, your health, your time with your family, then you'll be rewarded financially and you won't have to worry about all these horrible financial consequences that you're seeing out there. And if you don't do those things, then you will have to worry about that. And so I think the lesson that we learn is even though none of us should feel bad for the people that are most responsible for the design of this system and most financially benefiting from it, you know, your Zuckerbergs, Bezos, Musk, all these people, and even more so the ones that are less known, the big hedge fund people that just manipulate, you know, the stock market or the price of any asset for five minutes and do some behind the scenes illegal trade that they'll never get caught for doing, you know, those people are not happy. And, you know, to come up with a very extreme example, like I would hate to be the leader of North Korea. You know, basically you're thinking I have to hold on to power by any means necessary, even murdering my family. Uh, and if I don't, I'm going to die. Like these are the two options, either hang on to power or I die. And that's kind of like an extreme example of of if you make the hierarchy so steep and you create these incentives, you, you again can create this control of people. And so I would challenge anybody to think about, you know, walking in my shoes for a day versus Branson or, or Musk or Bezos or Zuckerberg or any of these other people, 
even though they are vastly more wealthy and powerful than I am, I'm pretty sure they're not more satisfied with life and not that it's some kind of competition, but I think we can look at that and we can see how, yeah, we don't need to feel bad for the people on top, but the system even is hurting them in ways that might be somewhat counterintuitive. However, as you pointed out before, the system sort of selects for the people that don't care about those things, that do have, you know, those tendencies that some people might call like, you know, psychopathic or, or whatnot, or sociopathic, I should say. And so, you know, so we need to basically just recognize that it really is a design, it really is systemic, we need to change it. And even though we certainly should not change it for the people on the top, they're actually, uh, they're they're not really living their best life. They could be living a better life if we had a system where they were paying 50%, you know, income tax, three, four, five percent wealth tax, and you know, having a much more just reasonable approach to you know everything in life in 2021. Dan, it has been so fascinating talking to you, learning about your philosophy, um, getting inside the minds of some of these sociopaths that you <laughs> deal with on a regular basis. Thank you so much for spending and the time with us. We really appreciate Dan, it. Dan, just real quick before we wrap up, I just want to say that your Twitter feed is so good by far. I, I don't even think it's close. I, you're the Michael Jordan of Twitter in my world. <laughs> because, And here's why, here's why I say that. There's not a single tweet that you've done that I haven't immediately thought like I should retweet that. Like if I actually retweeted every one of your tweets that I wanted to retweet, my feed would just be Dan Price, Dan Price, Dan Price, Dan Price, Dan Price, Dan Price. Every one of your tweets. So do you do them all yourself? Because that's like a full-time job on its own. helping you with research or anything? Because that's the thing is they all add to the, it's like new information, add something to the conversation. Just economic facts after facts on wealth inequality and income inequality and the CEO to worker pay ratio. And I'm just like, ah, it's all amazing. So good. You know, um, it's it's really fun. And I have to say, though, on Twitter, I think I learn more from my audience than they learn from me. So a lot of my best tweet ideas actually come not necessarily from any one person, but it's more like six or seven different things that I heard from my audience where then I can kind of like stitch those together. So I really got to give credit to the people that, you know, interact with me. And, you know, yeah, you know, I have a an account that's like growing that people are appreciating and everything. But if you just read the things I'm reading from the people that are following and participating along, they're basically saying the same things I'm saying. So I don't think what I'm doing is really all that special. I feel like it's just kind of pointing out basic facts. But yeah, you know, I do I do put extra effort and resources into trying to phrase things in a way that's going to be, you know, interesting and informative for people. So I appreciate y'all noticing that. Dude, I can literally do full secular talk segments on like one of your because <laughs> it's just so full of numbers and facts. Thank and you for helping us with our programming, Dan. <laughs> and it's, I know, at, it's at Dan Price Seattle for those right. of you guys who want to follow him. If you're not already, you're missing out. You should go do that right away. D-A-N-P-R-I-C-E Seattle. Yeah. All one word. It's amazing. Dan, you're the man. That we really appreciate so you coming much on. coming from you too. So thank you so much. And it really is a, a, a huge pleasure for me to get to talk to both of you. So I'm I'm big fans of both yours and things you've done. So thanks for having me on. All right. So there's Dan Price. Um, listen, as we've both said, I think I honestly think he has the single best Twitter feed that's out there because it's nothing but straight facts nonstop about economic stuff, which is my wheelhouse. It's your wheelhouse. What I really cannot wrap my mind around, and I don't think I'll ever wrap my mind around this, is why is there only one Dan Price? 
Mm. You would think that there would be at least like, I don't know, 5% of the CEO workforce would be sort of like him. But no, it's so few and so far between. And I don't know what that says about human nature, but it takes me from my position of like human beings are both altruistic and collectivist, but also greedy and selfish and individualistic. And it makes me feel maybe my 50-50 analysis is a little skewed. And if anything, it leans a little more in that selfish direction. Hmm. I'm not willing to go down that uh, dark path with you. Uh, I think it's more to do with certain professions select for certain pe personality types. So why are most of the politicians in D.C. like corrupt shitheads, narcissistic, whatever? It's because in some ways we've created a system where like that's the incentive structure, where that job is going to be appealing to people who kind of fit that personality profile. And I think at this point uh, in America, the CEO job also has that same type of appeal where, you know, it's really been totally made official that the only thing you're supposed to care about is money, profit margins, the bottom line. And so if you're a person who actually like cares about humanity, <laughs> as Dan does, you're going to say like, this shit is not for me. And you're, and you're going to go in a different direction. So I kind of think it's about the profession itself and the type of characteristics of, of people who are going to succeed in that ecosystem and also who are going to be attracted to that ecosystem. Yeah, that very well may be true, but I also think that's a dark view if you really think about it because then the conclusion from that is like most or all of the people who go down that path, whether it's politician or CEO or whatever— they're like malignant narcissists. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I have I had a similar theory about, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but I've said it before publicly, so why the fuck not? Um, I I'm always skeptical whenever uh, you know, some man gets involved in a thing where they have access to kids all the time. Mm. Because remember what's his name? Jerry Sandusky? Yeah. He, he was the guy who was doing the most unimaginably terrible things to kids. And he had a fucking children's charity. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, Larry Nasser and That's exactly gymnastics. right. You're yeah, right. So he had access to all these kids, and he was doing horrendous things to them. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not trying to besmirch all pediatricians here or anything. Right, all but, people who right. work with children. But Yeah, but what I'm saying is it, it always does, you know, give me that extra layer of skepticism. And perhaps that is true about politicians, which— Well, I think uh, of it with regard to, like, uh, Wall Street types, too— oh. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you're the type who's going to find that or private equity or whatever appealing, like good chance you're kind of a sociopath, you know? Yeah. And or you just care about your own ambition, your own like wealth, your own narcissism. So I do think the the sad thing is that every all these positions that we're naming like banker and CEO and politician these are the people that run the country yep, right, yeah. <laughs> and all of these are professions that because of like the way that we've come to view them and the ecosystem that's been creative, uh, created and the incentives that are involved all attract like the worst people you can imagine with the most base possible motives. And I do think that goes a long way to explaining like how we are where we are. To your point, I know people who uh, one of them watched the movie Christian Bale, American Psycho. Mm-hmm. And have you ever seen that movie? No. Okay. You need but to I know movie. the gist, yeah. Okay. Well, his takeaway from that movie is, I want to work on Wall Street. 
And the number of people <laughs> who were inspired by the original movie Wall Street. Yeah. With Charlie Sheen and Gordon Gecko, And like the number of people who watched that fucking horrific speech from Gordon Gecko, the greed is good speech. Yeah. And they walked away from it going, yes, it's a scary number. And so to your point, yeah, a lot of, a lot of people who are attracted to certain professions, they're attracted to them for all the wrong reasons. It's like when somebody watches Scarface and then they want to be a mobster. Right. It's like, well, oh, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. I remember when Wolf of Wall Street came out and all these bankers were like going together in groups and going to the theater and like loving the whole thing and thinking like, we're amazing and we're awesome because we're just like this dude. Like that's and those, what you're away from this. And those are the people who crashed the economy. Those are the people who crashed the economy yeah. and got rich doing it. And those are the people who the politicians in this town pick up the phone when they call. Those they are the people They think they're the smartest people in the room. They think they're the smartest people right, in the room. Yeah. They think they're the masters of the universe. They get their custom bailouts and loopholes and all of that written into the law. They sometimes decide that they're going to go to space in penis-shaped rockets. Those are the people we're talking about here. Yeah, listen, this gets to a point I've been thinking about a lot recently. Everybody knows for the, for the longest time now I've been arguing that we very, very clearly do not live in a meritocracy. But as I get older, I start to think now not only do we not live in a meritocracy, we might more closely resemble an anti-meritocracy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where, like, the hardest working people you know are almost all piled up at the bottom making next to nothing. And then the people who make the most are usually, you Yeah, know. the people with, like, the best values who you would actually, like, view as good human beings. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Disproportionately getting totally shit on by society and screwed yep. and having to work so hard and struggle so much and then yeah these you know rich assholes like running the running the joint um it is it is kind of like an anti-meritocracy especially if you're if your idea of a meritocracy is like people who are actually good people and hardworking and like trying to play by the rules and do the right thing yeah i think they disproportionately get shit on no doubt about it the hardest working guy i ever knew his name's kevin he uh I, I knew him in high school. He was a grade or two above me and um, worked three jobs and, you know, was sort of barely getting by type stuff. Mm -hmm. He was on his own in high school. So he like he wow. paid rent, lived with his girlfriend or whatever, wow. but worked three jobs. And I remember thinking, this guy is such a fucking hard worker. And, you know, it makes you when you're a kid, you're told the harder you work, the further you go. And I look at this guy, Kevin, working these three jobs and sort of barely getting by. And I'm like. That's fucking bullshit. It's not the harder you work, the further you go. This guy would be a millionaire if it was the harder you work, the further you go. Yes. You know? So it's just the economy doesn't reward the, th to your point, the economy doesn't reward the things that when you're a kid, you sort of think maybe it rewards. Uh, and, you know, listen, that's the whole point of why we need redistribution of wealth. And that, that's at a bare minimum. I mean, we could have a bigger philosophical conversation about totally changing the nature of the economy, but... At the very least, we need steep taxes on the wealthy, and we need redistribution of wealth, and we need it in the form of a universal basic income. We need it in the form of child care. We need it in the form of college and health care. And, you know, this is just we're barely starting the conversation on that front because I always say the least we could do is sort of catch up to the places that already exist that have evolved beyond where we are, like in the Scandinavian region. Yeah, well, because as awesome as Dan is— 
and that he is a role model. And he says that others have reached out to him about, like, how can I do better by my workers? And he provides this proof that, like, hey, the company's doing really well, and it's not an accident that I treat the workers really well, and they feel good, and they feel fulfilled, and, like, are able to to live and not have all this stress put on top of them. It's awesome that he's out there. But we're never going to get anywhere if we're just like hoping for the goodwill and good grace of the CEO class or the billionaire class to do the right thing. That's never, ever going to happen. So you have to. It has to be done through the government. It has to be done at a society-wide scale because, you know, hoping for individual CEOs to behave in the great way that Dan has, that's just not realistic. You, you know, to your point, that's the main argument against charity. Because when you talk to a libertarian, uh, you know, libertarian on economics, they'll yeah. tell you, we don't need we don't need the social safety net. We don't, we don't need, need any of this stuff yeah. because charity will take care of it. You'll have billionaires who do philanthropy and that'll take care of it. Yeah. And I mean, the obvious response to that is we have billionaires. They do charity. And are all the problems fixed? Right. Well, like the shit, it's not fucking enough and it's never going to be enough because to your point, this isn't an individual issue. This is a systemic issue. Some things are just systemic issues. No matter how you try to wiggle your way out of it, there's no way around it. Some things are systemic issues and they need to be addressed as such. Well, not only that, but, um, you know, Bezos comes back from space and he gives like Van Jones $100 million <laughs> to do with as he pleases, whatever. And I mean, the issue with that, not to make this like personal about Van Jones and his civility, which is what he was apparently awarded this for. But um, as Irony, funky academic, pointed out to me, the big problem with that is it warps everybody's incentive. Like everybody's incentive is just to like please some rich ass to give them $100 million for their charity. You see this really clearly with Bill Gates in the public health sphere because he's given so much money in public health, which you could look at and go, oh, that's awesome. Like, he's trying to cure diseases, et cetera. He's completely warped that space, though, and made it so that, you know, nobody in that sphere wants to criticize him because his money is so important to doing whatever project you want to do. And his particular ideology which is, you know, very much in favor of patents and monopolies and pro-big pharma, just absolutely dominates the space because he becomes such a big player. So it's not even about these individual people and whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, but just having one person with so much money and being dependent on these for what should be these core public good functions, it creates an insane and usually terrible system. And we're, we're underselling it. The COVAX thing was a scam. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, completely. The, the numbers that they needed to get vaccines all around the world and the numbers that they were able to deliver, it's a fucking joke. Yeah. The only way you're going to hit those numbers is if you lift the patents. And guess who was on the front line saying, don't lift the fucking patents? Yep. Mr. Charity himself, Bill Aggress Gates. Aggressively. And by the way, this isn't the first time. Same thing with, um, with AIDS. With HIV, he was aggressively in favor of we've got to protect the patents, which really set, you know, the fight against AIDS back for a very long time. So there you go. Bill Gates sucks. Dan Price is awesome. That's the, that's <laughs> that's coming the it moral up. of the story. Um, all right, guys, if you like the show and you like us, do us a favor. Go to Substack, pay $5 a month and get the video of the show when you get it a day early. It'll come out on Friday. Um, and if you can't, it's OK. No worries. We still love you. You can sign up on Substack for free and uh, get the audio version of the show day later on Saturday. And it'll be sent right to you the second it drops. So highly recommend that. Uh, I would ask for a Barry Weiss update, but I know we're still nowhere near her, even though are we like permanently stuck at number 14 or something on that list? Something is that where like we're that. at? Yeah, pretty so, much. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, what I'm alluding to, for those of you who don't know, is 
uh, when we finally pass Barry Weiss, um, we will give you guys a behind-the-scenes tour of what it's like here at the studio. Um, but not going to lie to you, we got a lot of work to do in order to pass Barry Weiss. It's not looking good today, yeah. and I'm still, brothers and sisters. My biggest embarrassment is, in life is that Barry Weiss is above us on this <laughs> list. I don't know why you're laughing. I'm dead serious. I know. I'm what can I like, do but laugh, laugh advocates for, like, bombing Palestinian children, and we're behind her. Like, what have I done wrong? Jesus Christ. I guess there's a market, more of a market for that than what we would like well, to think. that's sad. That, that market sad. can go fuck itself. Anyway, all right, guys, love you, and we'll talk to you soon. Have a good one, guys.